How do you think the iconic starlet Marilyn Monroe died? Her death in the early morning hours of August 5th, 1962, at age 36, had been shrouded in mystery and controversy from the beginning. Officially, her cause of death was suicide from an overdose of barbiturates. The bombshell blonde was found dead in her bed, face down and clutching a phone, in her 1929 Spanish Hacienda-style home in the Brentwood neighborhood in Los Angeles. Angeles. She had only lived there for six months. But what really happened to Marilyn Monroe? Did she die by her hand, or was it something far worse? Welcome to Nightmare Houses. Norma Jean Mortensen was born on June 1, 1926, at the Los Angeles General Hospital in Los Angeles, California, to Gladys Pearl Monroe Baker. At age 15, Gladys married John Newton Baker, a reportedly abusive man who was about nine years her senior. She divorced him and received sole custody of their two children in 1923, but Robert Baker kidnapped them soon after and moved with them to his native Kentucky. Following the divorce, Gladys worked as as a film negative cutter at Consolidated Film Industries. In 1924, she married Martin Edward Mortensen, but they separated just months later and were divorced by 1928. He was thought to be her biological father. When Norma was born in 1926, Gladys was mentally and financially unprepared for her. She placed Norma with evangelical Christian foster parents in Hawthorne, briefly living there herself before moving back to the city for employment and only visiting on weekends. Weekends. In the summer of 1933, Gladys bought a small house in Hollywood with a loan from the Homeowners Loan Corporation and moved the seven-year-old Norma Jean with her. They shared the house with lodgers, actor George and Maude Atkinson, and their daughter Nellie. But by January 1934, Gladys had a mental breakdown and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. After several months in a rest home, she was committed to the Metropolitan State Hospital. Gladys would spend the rest of her life in and out of hospitals and rarely in contact with Norma. The young Norma became a ward of the state, and her mother's friend, Grace Goddard, took responsibility for her and her mother's affairs. Over the next four years, Norma's living situation changed often. For the first 16 months, she continued living with the Atkinsons and was possibly sexually abused. Norma was always a shy girl and developed a stutter and became withdrawn. In the summer of 1935, she briefly stayed with Grace, her husband Erwin Doc Goddard, and two other families. In September 1935, Grace placed her in the Los Angeles Orphans Home, where Norma felt unwanted. Grace eventually became Norma's legal guardian in 1936, but did not take her out of the orphanage until the summer of 1937. During the second stay with the Goddards, it was discovered that Doc was molesting her. Authorities removed Norma from them only after a few months. She then lived with her relatives and Grace's relatives in Los Angeles and the Compton neighborhood for brief periods. Sometimes, foster families would send her to the movies to get her out of the house. She loved to sit and watch them all day and into the night, which is when she developed her desire to become an actress. By September 1938, Norma Jean found a more permanent home when she began living with Grace's aunt, Anna Lauer, in the West Side District of Sawtell. Norma excelled in writing and contributed to the local school newspaper, but was otherwise an 
average student. Because Anna Lauer was elderly and had health problems, Norma was forced to live with the Goddards in Van Nuys in early 1941. In 1942, Doc Goddard was relocated to West Virginia, but California child protection laws prevented them from taking her out of state, and she had to return to the orphanage. As a solution to evade the orphanage, she married their neighbor's 21-year-old son, factory worker James Daughtry, on June 19, 1942, just after her 16th birthday. Norma subsequently dropped out of high school and became a housewife, but she found herself and James were mismatched, and she was bored. In 1943, James enlisted in the Merchant Marine and stationed on Santa Catalina Island, where Norma moved with him. In April 1944, James shipped out to the Pacific, where he remained for most of the next two years. Norma moved in with her in-laws and began working at the Radio Plane Company, a munitions factory in Van Nuys. In late 1944, she met photographer David Conover, who was sent by the U.S. Army Air Force's first motion picture unit to the factory to shoot morale-boosting pictures of female workers. In January 1945, she quit working at the factory and began modeling for Conover and his friends. Against her deployed husband's wishes, she moved independently and signed a contract with the Blue Book Model Agency in August 1945. She straightened her hair and dyed it blonde to make herself more employable. Norma quickly became one of its most ambitious and hard-working models. By early 1946, she appeared on 33 magazine covers for publications such as Pageant, Laugh, and Peak. As a model, Norma occasionally used the pseudonym Jean Norman. She signed a contract with an acting agency in June 1946. After an unsuccessful interview at Paramount Pictures, she was given a screen test by Ben Lyon, a 20th Century Fox executive. She was given a standard six-month contract. Her contract began in August 1946, and Lyon selected the stage name Marilyn Monroe. Her new first name was picked by Lyon, who thought she was like Broadway star Marilyn Miller, and the surname was Marilyn's mother's maiden name. In September 1946, she divorced James Daughtry, who opposed of her career. She spent her first six months at Fox learning acting, singing, dancing, and observing the filmmaking process. The studio renewed her contract contract in February 1947 who enrolled her in the Actors Laboratory Theater. Her teachers thought her too shy and insecure about having a future in acting, and Fox did not renew her contract. She returned to modeling and doing occasional odd jobs at film studios, but she was determined to make it as an actress. To network, she frequented producers' offices, befriended gossip columnist Sidney Slosky, and entertained influential male guests at studio functions. She also became a friend to, and occasionally slept with, Fox executive Joseph M. Skank, who persuaded his friend Harry Cohn, the head executive of Columbia Pictures, to sign her in March 1948. At Columbia, she was modeled after Rita Hayworth, and her hair was bleached platinum blonde. She began working with the studio's head drama coach, Natasha Lytes. Her only film at the studio was a low-budget musical in which she had her first starring role as a chorus girl courted by a wealthy man. But the studio did not renew her contract in September 1948, and again she returned to modeling. She shot a commercial for Pabst Beer and posed for artistic nude photographs for John Baumgarth calendars using the name Mona Monroe. She had previously posed topless for other artists, 
often was comfortable with nudity. Shortly after leaving Columbia, she also met Johnny Hyde, the William Morris Agency vice president, who landed her minor roles in several films. She gained a mention in photoplay, and her career began to take off. In December 1950, Hyde negotiated a seven-year contract for Marilyn with 20th Century Fox. But tragically, Hyde died of a heart attack only days later, leaving her devastated. Her popularity with audiences was also growing. She received several thousand fan letters a week. In February 1952, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association named her the best young box office personality. In her private life, she had relationships with various directors and actors, including Gil Brenner and Peter Lawford. In early 1952, she began a highly publicized romance with retired New York Yankees baseball star Joe DiMaggio. But in March 1952, she found herself amid a scandal when the press revealed that she had posed nude for a calendar in 1949. The studio had learned about the photos and that she was publicly rumored to be the model some weeks prior. She decided that, to prevent damaging her career, it was best to admit them while stressing that she had been broke at the time. The strategy gained her public sympathy and increased interest in her films, where she was now receiving top billing. In the wake of the scandal, she was featured on the cover of Life magazine as the talk of Hollywood, and gossip columnist Hedda Hopper declared her the Cheesecake Queen turned box office mash. Her films in 1952 continued with her typecast in comedic roles that highlighted her sex appeal. She added to her reputation as a new sex symbol with publicity stunts that year, but during this period, she gained a reputation for being difficult to work with, which would only worsen over time. She was often late or did not show up at all, did not remember her lines, and would demand several retakes before she would satisfied with her performance. Her dependent on her acting coaches also irritated directors. She disliked her lack of control on film sets and never experienced similar problems during photo shoots in which she had more say over her performance and could be more spontaneous instead of following a script. To alleviate her anxiety and her chronic insomnia, she began to use barbiturates, amphetamines, and alcohol, which also exacerbated her problems. By 1956, she would become dependent on these substances. She starred in three movies released in 1953. The first was the Technicolor film noir Niagara, in which she played a femme fatale. By this year, Marilyn and her makeup artist, Alan Whitey Snyder, had developed her trademark makeup look, dark arched brows, pale skin, glistening red lips, and a beauty mark. Niagara was one of the most overtly sexual films of Marilyn Monroe's career. She continued to attract attention by wearing revealing outfits, most famously at the Photoplay Award Awards in January 1953, where she won the Fastest Rising Star Award. Her second film of 1953, the satirical musical comedy Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, established her screen persona as the dumb blonde. As part of the film's publicity campaign, she and co-star Jane Russell pressed their hand and footprints in wet concrete outside Grauman's Chinese Theater in June. In September, Marilyn made her first television debut in The Jack Benny Show. She co-starred with Ben 
Betty Grable and Lauren Bacall in her third movie of that year, How to Marry a Millionaire, released that November. She was listed in the annual Top 10 Money-Making Star poll in 1953 and again in 1954. In December 1953, Hugh Hefner featured her on the cover and centerfold in the first issue of Playboy. He did so without her consent on the publication. The cover image was a photograph taken of her at the Miss America pageant parade in 1952, and the centerfold featured one of her 1949 nude photographs. Even though she had become one of 20th Century Fox's biggest stars, her contract had stayed the same since 1950, and she was paid far less than other stars of her stature and could not choose her projects. On January 14, 1954, she and Joe DiMaggio were married at the San Francisco City Hall. The couple then honeymooned outside of Idlewild, California in the Mountain Lodge of Maryland's Lawyer. Fifteen days later, on January 29, 1954, they flew to Japan, combining a honeymoon with DiMaggio's commitment to his former San Francisco Seals coach to help train Japanese baseball teams. From Tokyo, Marilyn traveled to Korea, and she participated in singing songs from her films for over 60,000 U.S. Marines over four days. After returning to the U.S., she was awarded Photoplay's Most Popular Female Star Prize. She settled with Fox in March, promising a new contract, a bonus of $100,000, and a starring role in the film adaptation of The Seven-Year Itch, which began filming in September 1954. Although shot in Hollywood, the studio decided to generate advanced publicity by staging the filming of a scene in which she is standing on a subway grate with the air blowing up the skirt of her white dress on Lexington Avenue in Manhattan. The shoot lasted for several hours and attracted nearly 2,000 spectators. The publicity stunt placed Marilyn on the international front pages and marked the end of her marriage to DiMaggio, who was infuriated by it. The union had been troubled from the start by his jealousy and controlling attitude. He was also physically abusive. After returning from New York City to Hollywood in October 1954, Marilyn filed for divorce after only nine months of marriage to Joe DiMaggio. After filming for the seven-year itch wrapped up in November, she left Hollywood for the East Coast. She and photographer Milton Green founded their own production company, Marilyn Monroe Productions, MMP, beginning a year-long battle between her and Fox in January 1955. After founding MMP, Marilyn moved to Manhattan and spent 1955 studying acting. She took classes with Constance Collier and attended workshops on method acting at the Actor Studio, run by Lee Strasberg and growing close to the Strasbergs. She replaced her old acting coach, Natasha Lytes with Paula Strasberg. She continued her relationship with Joe DiMaggio despite the ongoing divorce, but also dated Marlon Brando and playwright Arthur Miller. The affair between Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller became serious after October 1955 when her divorce was finalized and he separated from his wife. The film studio urged her to end it as Arthur Miller was being investigated by the FBI for allegations of communism and had been subpoenaed by the House of Un-American Activities Committee, but she refused. The relationship led to the FBI opening a file on her. By the end of 1955, Marilyn and Fox 
Fox signed a new seven-year contract, and she began 1956 by announcing her legal win over 20th Century Fox. On June 29th, Marilyn Monroe and Arthur Miller were married at the Westchester County Court in White Plains, New York. Two days later, they had a Jewish ceremony in Wakaba, New York. With the marriage, Marilyn converted to Judaism. She received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actress for her performance of Bus Stop in 1956. In August, Marilyn also began filming MMP's first independent production, The Prince and the Showgirl, at Pinewood Studios in England. It was based on a 1953 stage play to be directed and co-produced by, and to co-star, Laurence Olivier. But conflicts between him and Marilyn Monroe complicated the production. She and Milton Green also argued how to run MMP. Despite their difficulties, filming was completed on schedule by the end of 1956. After returning from England, Marilyn Monroe took an 18-month hiatus to concentrate on family life. She and Arthur Miller split their time between New York City, Connecticut, and Long Island. At this point, her dependence on pharmaceuticals escalated. As a result, she had an atopic pregnancy in mid-1957 and a miscarriage a year later, likely caused by her endometriosis. She was also believed to have undergone many abortions by this time. She was also briefly hospitalized due to a barbiturate overdose. As she and Milton Green could not settle their disagreements over MMP, she bought his share of the company. In July 1958, she returned to Hollywood to star in Some Like It Hot. She considered the role of Sugarcane another dumb blonde, but accepted it due to Miller's encouragement and the offer of 10% of the film's profits on top of her standard pay. Marilyn demanded dozens of retakes and did not remember her lines or act as directed. Despite the difficulties, Some Like It Hot was a critical and commercial success when it was released in March 1959. This performance earned her a Golden Globe for Best Actress. After filming, she took another hiatus until late 1959, when she starred in the musical comedy Let's Make Love. She accepted the part only because she was behind on her contract with Fox, but her frequent absences from the set delayed the film's production. During the shoot, she began an extramarital affair with her co-star, which was widely reported by the press and used in the film's publicity campaign. The last film, Marilyn completed was John Huston's The Misfits, filmed in the Nevada desert between July and November 1960. Filming with her again was difficult. Her marriage to Arthur Miller was effectively over, and he began a new relationship. By late 1960, her health began failing. She was in pain from gallstones, and her drug addiction was so severe that her makeup usually had to be applied while she was still asleep under the influence of barbiturates. In August, filming was halted for her to spend a week in a hospital detox. Marilyn and Arthur Miller separated after filming wrapped, and she obtained a Mexican divorce in January 1961. The Misfits was released the following month and failed at the box office. In the first six months of 1961, Marilyn Monroe was dealing with health problems. She underwent cholecystectomy and surgery for endometriosis and spent several weeks hospitalized for depression at the Payne Whitney Psychiatric Clinic. The stay at the clinic would, in her words, have a very bad effect on her. As revealed in letters she wrote while hospitalized, she was helped by Joe DiMaggio, with whom she rekindled a friendship. 
He sent her flowers, hoping she would call him, and she did, revealing that this was perhaps the lowest point in her life, and she was incredibly lonely. She also dated Frank Sinatra for several months, and in late 1961, she permanently moved back to California. Following this tumultuous period, she was advised to purchase her own home and establish some roots. In February 1962, Marilyn Monroe purchased a home at 12305 Fifth Elena Drive for over $77,000. It was a one-story, seven-room, L-shaped Spanish hacienda-style ranch initially built in 1929. It only had two owners before she purchased the property. It was first listed for sale in May 1949 and again in November 1961, listed until Marilyn bought it as the third owner. She paid for half of the home in cash and took out a mortgage for the second half. The property is in the Brentwood suburban neighborhood in the west side region of Los Angeles. The house was built with reinforced concrete and a six-foot wall surrounding the property, offering privacy and seclusion on half an acre of land. It had a red roof tile and beige stucco concrete siding. Marilyn loved how private and secluded the home was. While private, it was located at the end of a cul-de-sac in a densely packed neighborhood. It was advertised as having three bedrooms, a large family room, two fireplaces, one in the living room and one in the master bedroom, two bathrooms, radiant heat, and it had a kidney-shaped pool. There is also a small guest house located on the property. In the first few months, she spent time decorating the home with items found on trips to Mexico, including triangular-shaped hanging starlights and colorful Mexican tiles, which she used throughout the house. There are vaulted ceilings throughout, consisting entirely of wooden beams and planks. The, the threshold to the home has four white tiles, with a light blue crest, which reads Cursum Perficio in Latin, which means my journey ends here. It's not clear if Marilyn installed those tiles or if they were part of the original estate, but it seemed like a peaceful place for her. Marilyn remodeled the kitchen when she bought the house, which likely maintained the original 1929 kitchen. This home was a chance for Marilyn to start fresh on her own after a brutal past year. She returned to the public eye in the spring of 1962, receiving a World Film Favorite Golden Globe Award, and began to shoot a film for Fox, Something's Got to Give. It was to be co-produced by Monroe's production company, directed by George Cooker and to co-star Dean Martin. Days before filming began, Monroe caught sinusitis. Despite medical advice to postpone the production, Fox began it as planned in late April. She was far too sick to work for most of the next six weeks, but despite multiple doctors' confirmations, the studio studio pressured her by publicly alleging that she was faking it. Marilyn Monroe spent the first few months in her new home primarily sick in bed. On May 19th, she took a break to sing Happy Birthday, Mr. President on stage at President John F. Kennedy's early birthday celebration at Madison Square Garden in New York. She drew attention with her costume, a beige, skin-tight dress covered in rhinestones, which made her appear nude. She was rumored to be having a torrid affair with the president, and he was ultimately embarrassed by her appearance. She was also rumored to be having an affair with the president's brother and attorney general, Robert Bobby Kennedy, who was also married with seven children at the time. There was mounting speculation, particularly after her Madison Square Garden appearance, that she was getting too close to the Kennedys, who maintained publicly Irish Catholic morals and values. In addition to her mounting personal troubles, things were getting worse for her professionally. Her trip to New 
New York caused even more irritation for Fox executives who had wanted her to cancel it. When she returned to Hollywood, she filmed a scene for Something's Got to Give in which she swam naked in a swimming pool. She resumed filming and celebrated her 36th birthday on the set on June 1st, but she was again absent for several days, which led Fox to fire her on June 7th and sue her for breach of contract, demanding $750,000 in damages. Lee Remick replaced her, but after co-star Dean Martin refused to make the film with anyone other than Marilyn Monroe, Fox sued him and shut down the production. Fox publicly blamed Marilyn Monroe's drug addiction and alleged lack of professionalism for the demise of the film, even claiming that she was mentally disturbed. To counter the negative publicity, Marilyn Monroe gave interviews to several high-profile publications, such as Life, Cosmopolitan, and Vogue during that summer. After successfully renegotiating her contract with Fox, filming with Marilyn was scheduled to resume in September on Something's Got to Give, and she made plans for starring in What a Way to Go, as well as a biopic about Jean Harlow. But by this time, Marilyn was seemingly on her last legs, desperately trying to repair her image and herself. Between July 28th and July 29th, 1962, Marilyn found herself at the notorious mafia haunt, the Cal Nava Lodge in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. She was invited by her former lover, Frank Sinatra. She spent that weekend with Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Juliet Prowse, who was engaged to Sinatra, Peter Lawford, and his wife, Pat Kennedy Lawford, the sister of President Kennedy, and Paul Skinny D'Amato, as well as notorious mafia godfather, Sam Giancana. By this time, Marilyn was distraught and heartbroken. She felt the Kennedys had treated her like a piece of meat. Her grip on reality had been weakened by mental illness, alcohol, and drugs, and she was even more unstable. She was convinced that Bobby Kennedy really would divorce the mother of his seven children. Again, the Attorney General of the United States, a member of the most famous Catholic family in the country, and a politician who had just been named Father of the Year, it was improbable that he would run off with a divorcee and Hollywood sex symbol. She wasn't getting her way, and Marilyn was now feeling abused. She had always known how to stage a scene and how to get what she wanted, and she began to threaten the Kennedys. She initially appeared in good shape when she arrived at Calneva after flying there in Frank Sinatra's private lane that Saturday. But as the evening went on and drugs and alcohol flowed, she became drunk and defiant, causing a scene at the resort bar. She was reportedly furious that night. Frank Sinatra, irritated and concerned by her erratic behavior, acted fast. She was in a state where she could have said anything, which was a major concern for those around her that night. Marilyn knew a lot of secrets, and it was thought she was about to share them. Sinatra had his bodyguard, Coochie, get her out of there. Coochie picked her up and carried her out of the bar. It's been suggested that Sinatra invited Marilyn to the Calneva Lodge that weekend to urge her to keep her mouth shut about her affairs with the Kennedys. At this point, Marilyn didn't have many friends left, and this was seemingly a total breaking point for her. Marilyn returned to her home that Sunday. Within five days, she was dead. On Saturday, August 4th, 1962, Marilyn Monroe spent the day at her Brentwood home. That morning, she met with photographer Lauren Schiller to discuss the possibility of Playboy publishing the nude photos taken of her on the set of Something's Got to Give. She also received a massage from her massage therapist 
therapist, talked with friends on the phone, and signed for deliveries. Also present at the house that morning was her housekeeper, Eunice Murray, and her publicist, Patricia Newcomb, who had stayed the night. According to Newcomb, they argued that day because Marilyn had not slept well the night before. At 4.30 p.m. local time, Marilyn's psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, arrived at the house to conduct a therapy session and asked Newcomb to leave. Before Greenson left around 7 p.m., he asked Eunice Murray to stay overnight and keep her company. Around 7 to 7.15, Marilyn received a call from Joe DiMaggio Jr., with whom she had stayed close since her divorce from his father, and he detected nothing alarming in her behavior. Around 7.40 or 7.45, Marilyn telephoned Dr. Greenson to tell him the news about the breakup of DiMaggio and his girlfriend. Marilyn Monroe reportedly retired to her bedroom at approximately 8 p.m. She received a call from actor Peter Lawford, hoping to persuade her to attend dinner with him and his wife that night, talking to her twice that evening. The second time they spoke, she sounded despondent about her career. Peter Lawford became alarmed because she sounded like she was under the influence of drugs. She reportedly told him, say goodbye to Pat, say goodbye to the president, and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy, before drifting off. Unable to reach her, Peter Lawford called his agent, Milton Roberts, who unsuccessfully tried to contact Dr. Greenson and later called Marilyn Monroe's lawyer, Milton named Mickey Rudin. Rudin called Marilyn's house and was assured by the housekeeper, Eunice Murray, that she was okay. There are reports that Marilyn had one final conversation with her hairdresser, Sidney Juleroff, around 9.30 that evening. The actress reportedly told him that Bobby Kennedy had come to her home earlier that day and threatened her. However, Kennedy's visit has been disputed, as attorney John Bates told reporters that the attorney general was in Northern California with his family the entire weekend, though some reports state that he was really staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel that weekend. At approximately 3.30 a.m. on Sunday, August 5th, Eunice Murray woke up, sensing that something was wrong, and saw a light from under Marilyn's bedroom door, but she was not able to get a response and found the door to her bedroom was locked. Eunice telephoned Dr. Greenson, on whose advice she looked through a window and saw Marilyn lying face down on her bed, covered by a sheet and clutching a telephone receiver. Dr. Greenson arrived shortly after that. He entered the room by breaking a window and found Marilyn Monroe dead, inside the room, wrapped in a champagne-colored sheet. Dr. Greenson saw empty bottles of pills on her nightstand, and Marilyn's outstretched hand gripped her telephone. But Dr. Greenson's first call wasn't to the police. Instead, he called Dr. Engelberg, the man who prescribed Marilyn sleeping pills. Dr. Engelberg drove over, confirmed Greenson's suspicion that Marilyn Monroe was dead, and pronounced her at 3.50 a.m. on Sunday, August 5th. At 4.25 a.m., they notified the Los Angeles Police Department. When the police arrived, they found the Marilyn Monroe house only partially furnished. Many unpacked boxes were still scattered about the house at the time of her death. Marilyn Monroe's death was immediately labeled a suicide, with police finding 12 to 15 medicine bottles on her bedside table. Her home was her fortress, where she felt safe from the world, and it was ironic that she would die at home in bed so soon after a 
establishing herself there. She loved her house and probably hated leaving. The public was devastated by the death of the iconic actress, and the news of her passing made the front page of newspapers worldwide. Following her death, per her will, she gave $10,000 each to her longtime assistant and her half-sister. She put $5,000 in a trust fund for the education of her assistant's child, and she left a $100,000 trust fund for her mother. 75% of her intellectual property and estate were left to her acting coach, Lee Strasberg. The remaining 25% was given to her New York psychiatrist, Dr. Marianne Chris. When Lee Strasberg died in 1982, his second wife, Anna Mizrahi, inherited Marilyn Monroe's estate. She hired CMG Worldwide, a company that manages the estates of dead celebrities, to license Marilyn Monroe merchandise and started profiting off the iconic star. Marilyn Monroe LLC was established, and in between 1996 and 2000, she made more than $7.5 million in licensing revenue. Marilyn Monroe's will stated that she wanted her personal effects and clothing to go to her friends and colleagues. However, Mizrahi commissioned auctioneers Christie to sell off the items in 1999, including the famous rhinestone dress she wore to sing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to John F. Kennedy, and which Kim Kardashian wore to the 2022 Met Gala. The dress went for more than $1 million, and it was sold again in 2016 for $4.8 million to Ripley Entertainment. Marilyn's cherished grand piano sold for $600,000 to Mariah Carey. It took nearly a decade for her estate and affairs to be sorted, and in 1972, actress Veronica Hamill purchased the home, which had now become a macabre mecca for Marilyn Monroe fans. Soon after, while remodeling, Hamill reportedly discovered telephone tapping and eavesdropping systems installed in each room of the house, including bathrooms. It was reported that law enforcement and corporate phone security officers examined the discovery and found two different sets of wires. One set of wires was instantly recognizable as an FBI installation because of the distinct coding of the cables, which was used exclusively for law enforcement. The signature of the second set, installed after the FBI wires, came from wireman Bernard Bates Spindle, the tap and bug expert hired by law enforcement and organized crime. Marilyn had confided to her makeup artist and her hairstylist that she believed her house was bugged sometimes noting strange clicking on the phone line. Despite this, no tapes of Marilyn Monroe in her home have ever been released. The home sold several more times in 1994, 2010, 2012, and was last on the market in May of 2017, where it sold for over $7 million. During the 2017 renovation, some interior changes were made. While very similar to the house when Marilyn lived there, the house has undergone some significant changes. The guest house and main house have been joined. Several rooms have been added to the back of the house and are not connected to the main house. The pool area remains the same, as does the terraced lower lot in the rear of the house. Marilyn's bedroom has also undergone some changes, primarily because the bedroom door was relocated to a different wall. The area where Marilyn's door was was converted to a built-in bookcase. The door to the room is now immediately behind where Marilyn's wooden bedside table was located. The fireplace in that room remains intact. 
Marilyn's bathroom also has undergone significant renovations. A full tub and shower are now situated in the area that was her sink and counter. Her tub and shower were removed and the room was extended. The toilet appears to be in its original location. The living room is the same, long but very narrow. The yellow and blue tiles Marilyn selected in Mexico still surround the fireplace. Marilyn's dining room now serves as a den for the current residents. Built-in cabinets have been added around the dining room window. The kitchen has undergone significant renovations and is not recognizable today compared to the kitchen Marilyn installed. Only the location of the stove and the hood remain unchanged. The main house and guest house were now connected and the kitchen expanded. The area with Marilyn's kitchen nook, a wooden table, built-in benches, and counter area with kitchen sink and dishwasher have been completely renovated. Renovated. The sunroom is primarily unchanged structurally from when Marilyn owned the home. Likewise, the tiles on the floor are the same tiles from when Marilyn lived there. One wall now has built-in cabinets near where Marilyn kept her liquor cart. Marilyn wanted to escape from the world at 12305 5th Helena Drive. However, by the time she moved in, she was in a bad place mentally, emotionally, and financially in the summer of 1962. By this point in her life, she had lived in over 40 different homes, but this home was the first one she bought and lived in all by herself. Many details about her death remain unknown, opening the door to many conspiracies. Only those closest to her and the house's walls know precisely what happened to Marilyn Monroe that Saturday night into early Sunday morning. One mystery regarding Marilyn Monroe that has been solved is her parentage, which has always been unknown. In 2022, DNA testing indicated that Marilyn Monroe's father was Charles Stanley Gifford, a co-worker of Gladys's with whom she had an affair. Even in death, Marilyn Monroe could not escape and have the privacy she greatly desired. Today, she is arguably the most famous person to have ever existed. But even as the world's sexiest and most beautiful woman, she always seemed to remain a little girl that just wanted to be loved. Her home remains privately owned, but no matter who lives there now, it will always be Marilyn Monroe's home and will always keep the secret of what happened to the iconic star. Thank you for listening to Nightmare Houses. For more information, including photos and references, please visit www.nightmarehouses.com. Until next time, goodbye.